Good morning, everyone. This is Asha Nayaswamy in our little fireside chats without the fire um, in the middle of sheltering in place. So here we are. Um, I received, oh, let us start with a prayer. I want to remember to do that always. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Master, Paramhansa Yogananda, Saints of all religions, Dearest friend Swami Kriyananda, we offer our lives in service and devotion to your cause of self-realization for all. Bless us that we feel your inward presence and have the courage and the clarity to follow your will in all that we do. Om. Peace. Amen. You know, the vibration of the masters is really interesting. The reason we uh, go through the litany of each master each time, of course, is to bring their vibration uh, into our awareness. I was reading just something that Swami had written, and he said, uh, the vibra- he, was, he was quoting master, the vibration of a master uh, exists eternally in the ether. It simply never goes away. And so when we say the name, like in Autobiography of a Yogi, it says, anyone who says the name of Babaji with devotion attracts to themselves an instant blessing. So when we're repeating that prayer, it's extremely important not to just say, Father, Mother, Jesus Christ, Babaji, Krishna, you know, like that. It's like each time we say those that word, Sri Yukteswar, Paramahansa Yogananda, we're, what we're really doing is we are awakening within ourselves a matching vibration so that the vibration of the master can come into us. Just what I was talking about yesterday when I was talking about karma, about how our inner vibration creates an opening and then karma that matches our vibration can come in. And so that that's how we completely shift our magnetism is to make our vibration match the vibration of the divine. And in that way, the, what, the only thing that reaches us is the divine. So saying the names of the gurus and and very consciously visualizing what that master means to us uh, is a very powerful practice. So just a a little thought in that respect. Um, Now, I I received a a question through the mail, and I encourage you either to email me directly, asha at anandapaloalto.org, or you can put questions if you're watching on Facebook. We'll either take them in the moment or I'll take them later, uh, later in a later broadcast. So um, I received in the mail, I encourage you, if you're on Facebook, you can write questions to me. And I got a very interesting question, which I had seen and heard discussed, but now I, I think it's a good time to address it. And it's basically, the question is, why are we fearing the virus? Why don't we just love it? Is the virus, if the virus is sent by God, shouldn't we love the virus? Now, I'm... It's a little hard for me to get a hold of it just exactly as a virus, so I'm going to talk around the subject from other experiences that I've had with Swamiji and thoughts that I've had on this very same issue. You know, what's actually being asked by that question, even though it might not sound like it uh, exactly, is, is there such thing as righteous war? 
and, and of course that's what the whole Bhagavad Gita is about, and the, the Ramayana too for that matter. It's about conflict in which heroic God, God characters aren't, aren't nice. <laughs> they just, they pick up swords, they pick up bows and arrows, they pick up uh, powerful mantras, and they attack an enemy, and they do their best to destroy it. And it's a, it's a very serious question because the mind really can spin in lots of directions, and the inclination of the refined spirit is, is not is, is not to want to do battle, but exactly the opposite, to try to find some way to accommodate, to sacrifice, to not enter into what, what you would perceive as negative states of consciousness, which is why the Gita especially is such an interesting document. Uh, and if you follow the whole story of the Mahabharata, um, those of you who have time on your hands, um, you'll find somewhere on my YouTube channel I've told the whole story of the Mahabharata and the whole story of the Ramayana from the perspective of self-realization teachings as, as the symbols have been interpreted. And you, may, you might find that both entertaining and interesting. And so th the question is, you know, in, and in fact, you know, Rama incarnated and Krishna incarnated, Krishna incarnated specifically as the Gita describes it, whenever virtue declines and vice begins to predominate in society, I, the infinite spirit, take visible form in order to destroy, you know, that rising dark force. And oftentimes, the, the nature of that incarnation is, war is warrior-like. And in fact, Master himself spoke of two incarnations. One is William the Conqueror, and the second, um, after some research Swamiji feels was Ferdinand III in Spain, both of those incarnations were almost constant war. Ferdinand III, especially in Spain, it was a time when Christianity was being driven out of Spain by the invasion of the Moors. For, for his entire life, in that incarnation, Master was at war, literally at war, on his horse, you know, driving the uh, these this this force out of Spain to hold Spain um, in in the Christian world. Now we can argue from our present perspective all the different things we may think about Christianity or the Catholic Church, but we have to also, as I say, reverse engineer it and think of it backwards. That Master felt it was worth his incarnation as an avatar to do that, but even more than that, he was a warrior. I mean, he he killed people for the sake of the mission that he was working on. And in the Gita, uh, when Arjuna objects, he says to Krishna, how can, I, how can I kill these people? Because in the Gita, the war is between cousins. I'm not going to give you the whole symbology. I, actually, I teach another seminar on the Gita, and you can find that elsewhere. But um, Arjuna says to Krishna, I don't want to kill these people. And Krishna says, you, you, you see their bodies fall, and you think they have died, I see their souls rise and realize that they've just been liberated from that form. Now, that's part of the answer, because if we just use our own reasoning, we can't always come up with the right answer, because we have so many fears and prejudices within us. And it's very difficult to think completely clearly 
when we have any kind of an emotional bias, reason follows feeling. So it's not that we can't use our reason, but I find it useful to look first to the example of the masters and see how the masters lived. And if I can't quite match my own understanding to that, I at least try to understand why they would have behaved that way. So now I'm going to skip from the Mahabharata into something much closer to the life that I myself have lived. Ananda um, was under uh, legal uh, attack, so to speak, for 12 years. The, 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 the litigation, we had, there were two different lawsuits filed against Ananda, but they were actually one continuous lawsuit because there was a huge dispute among disciples of Master as to whether or not Ananda was a valid expression of Master's teachings. The, the, the cycle of that is in America, where religious groups rise up easily and churches are founded, but it's, it's a human nature thing. The first, the first, in America, we would call it the first church of, because there's all these different religious groups. I understand, I know our Italian friends find this incomprehensible that you can start a religion, but in America you can. Okay, so Master came to America and started the Church of Self-Realization, Self-Realization Fellowship Church, Inc. is what he called it. And it was the first church of self-realization. Now, let's put aside our specific path here. And, but there's the first church of all kinds of denominations in America. Almost invariably, at a certain point, either the leadership of the first church of divides or some outlier is kicked out and either removes himself by choice or is forcibly removed. Then that individual has to make a decision as to whether or not, even though he's on the outside of the first church of, whether or not what he feels guided by God to do justifies him starting the second church of. And if such an individual or group does start the second church of, the first church of, we have a, a battle over heresy. That's basically what happens. Now, um, it also happened in the Catholic Church. There were the Gnostics and there was the Institutional Church. But the Institutional Church, which became the Roman Catholic Church, basically suppressed the Gnostics. So we don't, the second church of really didn't get a chance until some many centuries later. Now, let me, let me, let me get this all straight in my mind. The first church of often feels because for a long period of time they enjoy a monopoly. And for whatever reasons, they feel justified in feeling that that monopoly is, is God-sanctioned. And that the very definition of their religious group is that it must be a monopoly of the first church of. And so that's the short version of why we had 12 years of litigation. First it was on intellectual property and trademark, you know, trying to use that. The second was just character assassination. It was an adventure. But it was a, it was a fight. I mean, you know, in, in modern times, St. John of the Cross was simply imprisoned by the brothers of the order that he was trying to inform, reform. They just threw him into prison and, and nearly starved him to death and then periodically tortured him until he managed to get a sympathetic guard to help him to escape. Um, nowadays, you go to court and you're tried to be ruined financially and 
in the media and things like that. You know, it's all just the point here, which is light against darkness. Because there's always these two forces, as long as we're working with the material plane, we're working with duality. And some forces bring us closer to the light, and some forces draw us farther away from the light. That was all a long introduction to get me to where I want to be. In the midst of that 12 years of struggle, there was a tremendous amount of internal conversation within Ananda as to whether or not it was appropriate to fight or whether or not we should just respond with love. And Swami had to answer that question over and over again. And here's what you're working with. There is a contractive vibration that will take you farther away from God. Now, it's very interesting. Um, Master, just it's, it's light and shadow. It's not really light and darkness. Light and shade is how Master describes it. And shade is something that blocks the light. So, yes, it's true. Everything is a part of the divine creation. But some realities shade that light and others reveal that light. So the um, responsibility of an individual committed to the light is to remove the shade as much as possible and to shine as brightly. Now, everything can be converted in theory by the power of love. But that, the power of love has to be stronger than the, the power to resist that love. And what happens sometimes is, is quite simply, people are unrealistic. They, 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 we become enamored of our theory and we fail to observe that we don't have the power to do it. There was a very interesting conversation. That was, it was presented to me secondhand, but I believe it was true. There was a, a, a person in our community who had a, a, a stage four cancer diagnosis. And the person did... Um, live longer than was expected, and grew a great deal spiritually from that extended lifespan, but in the end, the cancer took the life. And at the beginning, and, and the person eventually entered very deeply into allopathic medicine and took every one of the allopathic treatments that there was to take, and extended the life by doing that. But at the beginning, the person said to Swamiji, you know, um, I want to heal myself by natural methods, you know, and part of that was, you know, I'm not going to fear the cancer, I'm going to love the cancer, I'm going to, I'm going to love the cancer out of my body. I'm going to heal myself. And Swami's response was very calm but very pointed, looked directly into the eye of the person who proposed that and said, <clears throat> do you have the willpower and discipline to do that? And the person with the cancer diagnosis, you know, was extremely sobered by that, thought seriously for a moment, and said, no, sir, I don't. So see, it's not a question of whether it's possible, it's a question of whether we can do it. Now that's the first part of it. You know, this virus, the Master said that, that, that these bacteria, these epidemics, Master said this fascinating thing, that these epidemics are invaders sometimes from dark astral planets, and they, they come into the world like this, and Master even added, they come to be annihilated. They come to end their incarnations by being wiped out by modern medicine. 
Now that is like, you don't even know where, I don't even know where to think about that. But the fact that the response of light to darkness is often to annihilate the darkness. You know, Krishna came in to slay his own uncle, who was an evil dictator. And his, he was born to kill that man, because that man needed to be killed. Now this is also where what is death? You see, when you will death to something, you will death to this virus, that's not necessarily not an act of love. Because that virus is, is wreaking havoc and is, is, is greatly injuring higher consciousness beings. And the response of higher consciousness beings has to be, and this is also very interesting, and see there's so many pieces that are often a challenge. Master said that human life is more valuable. I know that those who, you know, are dedicated to animals and so on, and he said for a very simple reason, which is the human nervous system is capable of perceiving infinity. And therefore, when a, an individual jiva, an individual spirit is in a human body, that human body, that spirit in that human body has the potential to realize God. It's not that the spirit inside a tiger will not eventually realize God, but the body of the tiger will not allow that being to realize God because it doesn't have a highly developed nervous system. So that body is going to have to be shed. But the potential, both for the soul and for the benefit to the world, of, so, of, a, of a spirit in a human body is greater. And therefore, when there is a choice, the human body is more valuable. So when there's a choice between a virus and, and saving human lives and allowing souls to continue on their spiritual journey in the vehicle that has the potential for God realization, the higher consciousness has to do what it can to protect itself from the lower consciousness. Now, yes, of course, all these thoughts can be abused. But merely because a thought can be abused doesn't mean it's not true. But a lot, now, so part of it is we have to be practical. The second part of it is we have to realize that this is a battle between light and darkness. And sometimes light has to have the courage to be able to stand up for itself and to, and to believe in its... Uh, divine mission, it's, it's righteous, righteousness, I don't know else how to put it. So I'm going to go back to something more concrete, which is the story of Ananda and its litigation. A lot of people really objected to, to the, the strength with which Swamiji fought that litigation. And, but he himself said, if it was only about him, if he was solitary in the universe, he said the highest principle for him personally was not to defend himself. And even still, through the course of the litigation, it got complicated when he had to literally testify on his own, beha his own behalf. And it was, a, it was a moral dilemma for him. But he said, you know, hundreds of people had given their lives um, to Master through Ananda, and he felt an obligation to defend us. And he also felt it was a test of our commitment to the truth as we understood it, and, and a courageous willingness to stand by that in the face of enormous criticism and threat. So when people would 
tell us we shouldn't fight because it wasn't spiritually right to fight, that we should just love the opposition, when it was quite clear that no matter how much we loved the opposition, they were determined on our destruction because we did not, even Swami did not have the power to convert them. So to say that we were loving them was essentially to surrender to their idea that we should be obliterated and to let go of what we had built and were divinely responsible for in the name of love, it became a fine line between love and cowardice. And it became a fine line between what I prefer to do and then calling what I prefer to do God's will. Now, I know this is tricky, so I'm just saying this is a very fine line here. And I, I remember I had many conversations with Swamiji about that because I was quite on the front lines. And, and under his guidance, I did many very strong things. I wrote very strong letters and um, I made very strong statements. And, you know, I was by no means perfect in the way that I dealt with things. But he encouraged me to be forceful rather than passive in the middle of it. But what he also worked with constantly was our inner attitude. And this is what um, I was talking about yesterday. There came a point in the, in, I think in year 11, or maybe year 10 of the 12 year cycle, when we actually took, took to the streets, so to speak, and we made a huge public demonstration. We confronted directly the people who were trying to eliminate Ananda through the courts. It was very controversial, and I was in the crowd that, that, that instigated it and carried it out. And I, without going into the whole story, I tell it in my book, Light Bear, so you can read it in there. But it was 2001, I believe, right around that time. Um, Swamiji was very reluctant to give his permission for what he feared would be a direct confrontation. And I said, why? Why are you so reluctant? He said, because I'm afraid you will become angry, he said. I said, my response to him was, sir, you underestimate how excellently you have trained us. And he said to me, you are naive, Asha. He said, when you're in direct confrontation with people, anger is a natural response. He said, we can we can stand strongly for what we believe, but if we become angry at those who oppose us, he said, we have betrayed what we believe. And I said, oh, sir, we don't intend to confront. I said, we intend to educate. And then I said, which was the truth of what we did, we intend to sing. And we conducted a demonstration that was primarily continuously singing Swami Kriyananda's songs, and when we were done singing songs, we chanted, and we passed out literature. And here's what happened, Swami said to me, he finally said, you can go, said to us who were guiding, you can go, but you must promise me, if even one person becomes angry, he said, you must, you must stop everything and come back. And I said, absolutely, sir, absolutely. And one person got slightly impatient, but pulled themselves back fast enough that we didn't have to. But we, we considered it um, because, yes, you can't create peace by creating anger. 
but but you can stand strong and oppose something and speak just you see now you have to think like divine mother divine mother disciplines and we ourselves become confused when divine mother disciplines we have this thought that maybe god doesn't love us but of course god loves us all the more a mother who won't discipline her child a father who won't discipline his child is not expressing love i know a woman whose children were crippled for life because she never wanted to hear them cry and they weren't stupid they pretty much figured out how to how to follow their most selfish impulses because all they had to do was cry and then their mother would give in to anything they wanted you know it's that's not love that is with all due respect cowardice or an inability to do what is necessary and a preference for following what we want now you know how this relates to a virus which is yet a living thing but when god sends us a great challenge we have to ask ourselves and this is where i started this whole broadcast whatever many days ago what is it bringing out of me what weakness is it uh, exposing and and how do i personally within my own consciousness what is the response that will expand my consciousness you see that's what we're always working with what will contract and what will expand and words are not always the the right answer oh love of course is expansive not necessarily if that love is based on fear that's not really love because if you really love someone sometimes you have to say no and sometimes you have to enforce that no with whatever it takes to enforce that no if that is what you need to do to overcome fear and to expand your consciousness there was a time in my life when i realized that i had a certain kind of harmony i or let me say i i didn't i well harmony is the right word in the context that i was in i often didn't knew, do what i knew was was needed according to my own ideals because i was afraid of creating a rocking the boat of the people around me so i realized that what looked like being nice the core the core impetus of being nice was actually that i was afraid so i wasn't really being nice i called it nice but i wasn't being nice at all i was being afraid and fear is not expansive and i had to, i realized i had to be rude you know i had to be uh, uh, cheeky i had to be uh, well rude is the best word because it, there was no, nothing more at stake than that i had to fight i had to fight in, and i had to be disharmonious because i was afraid to be disharmonious and it wasn't that disharmony was a high value but it was a higher value than fear and so the expansive movement for me was to be aggressive and i was 19 years old i was living in new york city <laughs> a mellow californian you know living in new york city it was perfect because what seemed to me unspeakably rude was just natural life in new york city so i learned i learned to just stand up and speak and not be afraid and argue perhaps too much so but i did reach the point where it was too much so but then i could decide to be harmonious because i wasn't afraid you see now not everyone who says love the virus is afraid but really ask yourself am i afraid to recognize that this world is a mixture of light and dark and that is it's not going to be always harmonious and light and i may have to stand unshaken you know amidst the 
swirling whirl. You know, great souls are martyred. People are burned at the stake. Good does not always triumph in the short run. And, and oftentimes um, the fire comes and we have to stand in front of it. And we can't try to love the fire into submission unless we have the power from God to do that. We have to love the light and stand up for the light. Now, there's much more that I could say, but I don't have time. Perhaps tomorrow I'll try to say this. You know, we have to be in tune with God's will. I asked Swamiji once in a complicated question, you know, in a very difficult situation of life or death, how would I know what the right choice is? He said, practice when it's easier. So that's what we have to do. It's not our will that we're trying to follow. It's not our preferences. It's not our ideas. It's what do you want of me, God? What will draw me closer to you? And how do I love? Being nice is not the same as loving. You know, you can obliterate the enemy of light and do it with a perfectly loving heart because you know it's the right action and it's what God wants of you. You see how subtle it gets? But how much fun? And of course the answer to all of it is attunement with God. These are all the words that bring us back to love God, love God, attune to God, and let him guide you. God bless you.